Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Hey, welcome back to Yarn Stories Podcast. I hope that you've all had a wonderful time away. I had a lot of work stuff, as always. I'm an overachiever. So welcome to the new listeners. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to season one or that you have listened to season one. Season one had a decided focus on wool fibers and sheep breeds, but this season we're going to talk about other types of fibers. For example, we'll be talking about cotton and silk in this season. So in this vein, the first episode is a conversation with Sally Fox, legendary breeder of colored cotton and owner of the Color Organic Fiber trademark. She's doing amazing things on her farm in Northern California, and we had such a wonderful conversation and her story is so enthralling to me that I couldn't bear to cut it down into just 30 minutes. So I'm breaking this interview up into two parts. Today's episode, we'll talk about how Sally got interested in fiber and colored cotton specifically, her struggles in the industry with sexism, underemployment, and the monoculture takeover. And then next week, we will finish the interview and also talk to an expert. So let's jump right in with my interview with Sally Fox. I'm here with Sally Fox, owner of Versys Limited. Uh, she lives in Yolo County, California. Hey, Sally. Hi. Thanks for including me. Well, thanks for agreeing to talk to me. You are a luminary in this industry. So can you tell me a little bit about your history with cotton? Well, I began spinning cotton as a little kid. You know, it would be back then at the top of medicine and vitamin bottles. They yeah. used to have cotton sliver up there. Yeah. They call that roving, what we, what in the wool world, we would call roving. Yeah. Cotton people call it sliver. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I used to spin anything I could get my hands on, and I started spinning. The first fiber I had was my dog's hair. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went, back then, there wasn't, there weren't industries um, that had fibers yeah. for you to spin because yeah. this is the 19 late 1960s early 1970s yeah it was before so the you, the like back to nature hippie uh resurgence of spinning it was sort of those people were just beginning to get things going and yeah. i was a little kid yeah. right and so i was just finding things to spin and would spin them and so i would spin the medicine bottle that's cotton. hilarious my dog's hair, medicine bottle cotton, and, you know, just sort of anything I could find. And then and then in high school, um, I, I took this week-long intensive hand-spinning course oh, in San wow. Francisco. I had to take a week off of school. My teachers let me do it, too. That's good. And it was during, I know. It was during finals week. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and my teachers all let me take my finals after because they thought this was so cool. And, That's great. Um, it was, and so I learned to prepare and spin all the major fibers, and it was taught by a woman who taught at CCAC, which is the the California College of the Arts okay. and Crafts in yeah. Oakland. So, so that was my like graduation from just sort of like going around spinning anything I could get mm-hmm. to sort of really learning how to prepare linen for spinning, how to prepare wool from a fleece all yeah. the way to 
spun and silk. We undid, you know, we un, we oh, had unraveled silk moths. Yeah. Yes. Nice. We did everything. It was the most amazing class. And I'm so grateful I got to take that class. Well, and to be able to take it so early, too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, it could color the rest of your life. It did. See, it did. Yeah. It covered the rest of my life. So that's what got me started. Although she didn't really have a cotton section, I have mm-hmm. to tell you. But who did, right? That's, yeah. Um, <laughs> cotton has been in so much like associated with industry rather than like, you know, home crafts. Yes, right. I think our only home craft, you know, the places where it's done still by hand very much is, are, are, are in Central America, mm-hmm. um, India. Africa, India. And the Cajuns in the U.S. can preserve the tradition Oh, as that's well. great. Awesome. So you, so you took that class when you were a teenager? Yes. And then I, um, I had another teacher that had inspired me to go to college and not see. My big plan was I was going to be a custom hand spinner. I even printed out cards. It said, Sally Fox, custom hand spinning. And I, <laughs> sat, in a, <laughs> I sat in a window of a um, dog grooming place, mm-hmm. and people would bring their dogs in to be groomed, and then I'd spin their dog's hair. Oh, into nice. yarn <laughs> and you know my big vision was you know how when how sad you are when your dog yeah. dies yeah. that if you had something special from your dog mm-hmm. then it would you it's know like your, dog, I thought your dog's that, memory is with you it's a memorial piece yes yeah. so i thought this would be a good business but my teacher in high school she was the second woman to get a phd from kenya her name was elizabeth wangari mm-hmm. not the first woman was Wangari Maathai, and this woman's name was Elizabeth Wangari, and she she was like my um, she was my mentor, and she got me an internship at an insect um, research facility, okay. and encouraged me to study entomology. In those days, there was a big, uh, as you may recall, this recent article in the New York Times magazine. There was a big push among scientists to save the world, and. Yeah. One of the ways we were, you know, going to save the world was to reduce the misuse of pesticides. And yeah. you can go along screaming and complaining all you want about misuse of pesticides, but if you don't have some alternative for people to use yeah. when they're... Then they're going to use pesticides. Yes. So, or the pesticides yep. could be made to be more precise or less yeah. toxic or, you, you yep. know, whatever. And so... She wanted me to study entomology and be part of the group of people that would come up with solutions that weren't as dastardly for the environmental uh, yeah. environment health and human Worthy health. Goal. So that's what mm-hmm. I did. I was studying. I went to college, which I wasn't planning on doing, but I did. And <laughs> I worked my way through college. And one of my jobs was that I took. I had many, many jobs because I got a scholarship for tuition, but the tuition was nothing. It was the room and board that was so yeah. hard. And yep. um, I taught hand spinning. I started a hand spinning um, portion of the San Luis Obispo Weavers Guild. Um, nice. And my my first one of my first students was an older woman whose daughter had become a mental vegetable because her mm-hmm. her daughter had been a textile instructor in a high school and had taught a lot of classes where they dyed things and she hadn't worn gloves and the and the, oh no so she got poisoned she was poisoned by the toxins in the in the dyes and that's horrible yes and i had no idea you know here i was you know, into textiles in a big way as my hobby. And here I am working to put my way through school by teaching, spinning, but I never dealt with dying. I always had some sort of bad feeling about dying. And then 
I went to the library back then. We only had libraries, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was looking up, well, who makes ties, right? And it yeah. turns out it's the same companies that the com- that are making the pesticides. Yes. Same. Yeah, exact- like Dow Chemical, all the big, yes. you know, chemical companies. In fact, they all started yep. out before they did pesticides. They made dyes. That was how they all yeah. made their money. So I learned this and went, oh, no, I will never use dyes, any chemical dyes again. And so then I went on this yeah. kick of only natural colors of natural fibers. And mm-hmm. when I would come home, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area that, that I got all these amazing fibers. Like the San Francisco Zoo would let me go in to the into the um, where the musk ox and the camels were and collect all that yes. stuff. And I would get it, and I would spin with all these natural colors of natural fibers. Yeah. And um, so I was doing this, and really every single fiber has quite a few colors, really. Yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, human hair. Like, you know, nothing is is exactly the same color all the way throughout the strand or like throughout the whole head of hair right. you know like i've got i've got unicorn hairs i've got silver i've also got lighter tips than the base of my hair because sun damage you know same thing with animals yes and so there's never a flat color like you get with a dye yeah and it's um i feel like there's something more relaxing to the eye about it um but anyway yeah. i didn't want to be exposed to these chemicals because i was trying to get rid of misuse of pesticides well let's Get, use mm-hmm. of, get rid of misuse of dyes. So, you know, in my work, that's what I was doing. And then I was at a um, hand weavers. It was the, you know, Northern California and Southern California guilds. Are you familiar with these mm-hmm. hand weavers guilds? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, there's, there's one here. It's May Atwater Weavers Guild okay. up here in, in Utah. Okay. Well, so yeah. there's, in, in California then, the, there was a Northern California Guild and a Southern mm-hmm. California Guild. And the Southern California Guild had a convergence, I, if they call it a convergence. I'm not sure what they call it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Like a big, you know, like con. Yeah, where everybody gets together the, and does this. Well, they yeah. did this in Santa Barbara. I went to the one in Santa Barbara, and there was someone with textiles from Guatemala that had naturally mm-hmm. colored cotton. And it was the first time I, it, my mind, like, what? Cotton can grow yeah. in color? And yeah. I was shocked, and it was a very beautiful brown color. And mm-hmm. that was, like, 1977 or something. And mm-hmm. then I went off into the Peace Corps, and I, was, did all, I graduated from college, went into the Peace Corps, I came back, got my master's in integrated pest management. I was trying to go back. I worked for AID in West Africa, and it was a time where there was a horrible depression in agricultural jobs, in all agricultural jobs. And it was, you know, there'd be a job and 300 people would apply, and I was always number two or number three. I was never (laughs) number one, never. And it was so heartbreaking. And, And then I got into a Ph.D. program, and I went to start it, and they wanted me to take a pledge that if I ever had a child... I wouldn't stay away from my job for more than two weeks or some outrageous what? thing. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? what? I'm not making a pledge like this. And so, no. And so they said, okay, bye. And so I didn't get oh, to do the that's PhD. Crazy. And so I was heartbroken. Heartbroken because it was in soil microbiology, which was what I had really come to yeah. become fascinated with. Um, well, and... 
it ties in with everything else because if you can if you can give the the plants exactly what they need so that they're strong and pest resistant naturally then you don't need any any toxic pesticides right and to understand yeah. soil ecology what is a very yeah, big deal and i was yeah. studying it and as i had i had turned into going more towards nematology and um, biocontrol of nematodes with nematode trapping fungi and okay interjecting science bits Let's talk about nematodes for a second. Nematodes are worms, commonly called roundworms or threadworms, and they come in an astonishingly large variety. Some nematodes harm your plants, but some are absolutely essential for good soil ecology. So the beneficial ones can eat other pests, they can aerate the soil, and they keep all the plants healthy. Okay, back to the interview. So, so I was really into this, cool. and it was heartbreaking to not get to pursue that study. Well... And that's just ridiculous because you're paying for the PhD either way. Like, but you know what I mean? It's just, that's it's what, arbitrary that's and what all sexist. women in science were going through. It was not unique to this guy. This is what that's women ridiculous. in science in those days were asked to pledge to. Oh, God. It was terrible. And um, anyway, I did not make this pledge, so I did not get yeah. my PhD. And I... But one of my friends from undergraduate had a, had a father who was looking for someone to do pollinating of his cotton, and he needed a bunch of nematodes grown so he could evaluate how resistant his cotton varieties and tomatoes were to nematodes. So I yeah. took that job, and it was a yeah. job. Hey, and I wasn't number yeah. two out of 300. I was number one. No. So I took it. And you get to do, you know, essentially the, you know, the same kind of researching work that you wanted to do. Well, but you get paid for it. Except he didn't. He 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 failed to mention it was only two hours in the morning and two hours in the night. What? Yeah, and that it was like ten miles outside of town. He failed to mention all this when I before I moved there, and so then I'm like riding my bike because I can't afford the gas to drive out, mm-hmm. and I'm getting very. Well, you're only working two hours a day. Why am I strong and tough and? And um, <laughs> and so then I was like, well, okay, so I get the nematode things going, and I I'm doing I learn how to pollinate cotton and tomatoes, and mm-hmm. I learn all these things from him. He was he's an ama- he was an amazing breeder, very very creative, yeah. very out of the box breeder, and I and because of him I went on the path I went on. But it, two hours yeah. in the morning at minimum wage and two hours in the evening minimum wage wasn't enough. And so I said, Isn't there no. anything else I can do? And he said, Well you can clean up this greenhouse. So I said he I'll pay you to clean you can work cleaning this mess of greenhouse up. So I started cleaning the greenhouse up and I opened one of the drawers and there's this these paper bags. In one of the paper bags is a bag of brown cotton. Wait a minute, because we're all breeding with all this white cotton, which was, in my yeah. opinion, so boring. I couldn't believe so it. So boring. It was so boring. And so, like, I really, yes, I believed in breeding for pest resistance and all this just in my mind, but the work of it was so boring. And <laughs> I, I went to, uh, I, he comes back later after I've cleaned an area up and and I go, hey, look at this. Why aren't look at this fiber? It's gorgeous color. Uh, it's bad fiber. The Why fiber was awful. The fiber was really oh. short and rough. Okay. And yeah. I knew it was not something you could spin very easily. And um, yeah. I I said, hey, look at this. Why don't we Why don't we improve this fiber so that there were, so that people could, you know, use 
the cotton. Yeah. And he, and then he explained to me that he, oh, this USDA breeder had been giving these brown cotton seeds out to everybody trying to get them to use the brown cotton as sources of insect and disease resistance. Um, yeah. That they came from the Cajuns, they came from the seed bank, they were from the southeastern United States. Mm-hmm. They were originally grown by the slaves while they were enslaved, and when they got freed, yeah. the Cajuns picked them up and continued growing them. And they were extremely hardy and extremely yeah. pest and disease resistant. Well, because they've evolved that way. You know, we, we de-evolved the, the breeding when we, like, we're breeding for, for a finer uh, fiber and whiteness and really, really white whiteness. Well, and I think it was, I think it wasn't that that did it. I think it was the breeding for the plant's use of ag chemicals. Oh, like, okay. so if you're breeding where the plant is dependent upon you protecting it, yeah. Then yeah. you're going to have certain plants that are going to thrive that don't waste their energy producing protection for themselves yeah. because they are yeah. going to depend on you doing it. Well, th- yeah, they'll be the most productive because, you know, you're already taking care of that aspect. Right. And so yeah. if you're selecting and breeding for plants that respond to that kind of care, yeah. then, then you're, that's what you get. Th- they can't live without it. You have to yeah. give that kind of care to them. Yeah. And so... It's not just the breeding for the white that made them this way. It was the breeding okay. for the, that kind of care, I, yeah. in my opinion. But your opinion, it could be true, too. I'm, no, I'm not the expert well, like, on Well, you know, we weren't all paying attention to monocultures and stuff, you know, in the, like, 1800s when they were, when the cotton industry in, the, in England, you know, boomed. And, right. Yeah. So it's, um, so, but at any rate, he, he started laughing. He was in his 70s, and I was in my 20s. And he mm-hmm. started, and, and I, and I, he said, "Well, you know what? There's no market for naturally colored cotton." And you're like, "Watch me! I'm going to make one." <laughs> I said, "Oh, but let's make a market. Let's make a market, yeah. right?" And yeah. he starts laughing, and he says, he points at me, and he goes, "No, you make a market." <laughs> you He's like, "I'm this. too old for this shit." It's all your free time, because remember, I'm working two hours yeah. in the morning. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, here, and you can even have that part of the greenhouse that I'd cleaned up, you know. So, oh, nice. So, so, and he gave me advice, and he told me yeah. strategies, and he was very encouraging, and that's how it started. That's awesome. So you started with the brown? Yeah, I started with brown that the USDA breeder had given out, yeah. and my first... And that was, yeah, that that was uh, saved through, through Cajun farmers, yeah? Yeah, that's what, okay. the, that's what, if you look at the seed bank, it brings it to like nine, collected in the 30s from the cage. Nice. And um, out of this, I made a lot of different crosses and grew the progeny up. And they're, they're described in breeding language. They talk about F1, F2, F3, yes. F. So the F1 is the seed that you make, that develops from the, from the cross From the first crossbreed. Yeah. yeah. So another science interjection. For those of us who have been years out of high school biology, here's a little rundown of that classic Gregor Mendel crossbreeding table called a Punnett table. And Mendel was manually crossing pea plants using a paintbrush. And he discovered that when you cross a purple flower with a white flower, the parent generation, you get a purple flower, the F1 or filial one. But when you cross the F1s with each other, the F1 purple flowers with themselves, you get three purple flowers and one white flower in the F2 generation. So the purple appears to be dominant and the white flowers are recessive. So the F1 generation 
we're carrying the recessive white all the time, and it just shows up occasionally in the next generation. So P is the parent generation. F1 is the first filial generation that you get from crossing the parent generation. Then F2 is what you get when you cross the F1 generation with itself. So it's the next generation down. That's when you start to see variation come through, and you can get a recessive gene appearing by itself. Then you can take those crazy recessives and interbreed them by themselves for their own F3 generation, which makes a stable seed that will always give you the recessive genes. This is really an oversimplification, but you get the general idea. So the F1, I made all these F1s between different browns. I went through this bag and I hand ginned every single seed and I sort of put them by which ones were better to spin. And then I listened to his advice about who I should cross them to. Mm -hmm. And then I had my own ideas and I did all those kinds of crosses. I made lots of crosses and I planted up the seeds. Now, I got so bored with this job and that I took another job as a... um, and my mom got sick, and I wanted to go help her. And so I took yeah. a job with uh, San Mateo County, and I was like their medfly trapper. I was an insect trapper for San okay. Mateo County for a while, but I kept all these plants in pots. Yeah. And then later I took a job with Kern County um, Cooperative Extension, working for their IPM specialist and entomologist down there. And again, I brought all my pots with me, and I kept doing this work. And but all of it in pots, and yeah, so it's um, portable. Yeah, it was portable and just fit <laughs> more and more stuff and more and more things to bring around. And and anyway, it was my big thing. I was going to do. It was going to be my way of saving the world, right? Because we, yeah, it's hard, hard to you know. In the last twenty years, it's been hard to recall that a whole bunch of us were were really working on trying to save the world. It's funny this yeah. article that came out brought me back to those days of how this was like what we cared about yeah and not you know how big was your house or how how much bling you have or some yeah yeah. and and act and active like it was it was activist and idealistic and yes and everyone felt like they should be trying to do something so this is what i was trying to do because here was a way to get color and cotton because you already, ha- everyone already figured it out with wool, right? And I mean, yeah. there were all these other things going. They were fine, but nobody was doing this with cotton. And there yeah. was some real work to do. This fiber was bad. Yeah. Um, it was, well, it wasn't bad. It was challenging to spin. No, it was just spin. not, exactly. It was not easily spinnable. Correct. It wasn't going to be pleasant to spin. It would Correct. be a frustrating experience. Exactly. And later I found out, thanks to master hand spinner groups, that it wasn't just that it was a rough fiber. Also, yeah, it turns out that a whole bunch of them have color that wash out. The, uh. the, browns cons- the brown color consists of tannins, and there are water-soluble tannins and water-insoluble yeah. tannins. Okay. And so what I wasn't doing, but what really good spinners were doing, was boiling their yarn after they spun it. Now, I didn't know yeah. to do this. Um, yeah. So I wasn't boiling. So you thought it was on. fine. <laughs> I was spinning towards, I was breeding towards a better fiber to spin. Yeah. And every single plant I grew, I was madly in love with and thought was the most wonderful plant ever. And so I was very non-objective. And I yeah. decided I needed to have somebody help me, people help me with yeah. objectivity. And I didn't yes. have the money to pay for lab tests, nor did they even know where to send things for a lab test. 
Yeah. So I started sending my the fiber from different plants, um, F2s on. Mm-hmm. Really, F3s is when I started sending plants off, fiber from plants, to master spinning groups. There was one up in Madison, Wisconsin. There was one in Santa Cruz. There was one in Berkeley. There was one. There were. There were different mm-hmm. master spinner groups, and I sent the fibers in little bags off to these groups. They'll spin them for the fun of spinning them. You don't have to pay them for that. No, no, yeah, they just spun them, and then they told me what they thought, because I just yeah, wanted to know, great. what did they yeah. think? Am I making any yeah. progress? Is this all imaginary, or yeah. are some better than others? No, and that's great feedback. It was, but the biggest feedback, just what I wasn't expecting was that they came back with the feedback that some of them, when you boiled them, the color went away. Mm-hmm. And some of them, when you boiled them, the color got darker. Yeah. And so there's this selection you have to do right there on are you going to yeah. be breeding for ones where the color gets darker or the color gets goes away. Yeah. And so I, therefore, began selecting not only for is the fiber better? Is the fiber stronger? Mm-hmm. Is it longer? Is it more intense in color? Is the color something that is beautiful? Blah, blah. I, have, I added, does the color intensify? Yeah. And that was the critical thing. And it's funny because, de- you know, I don't know, eight, nine years later, I p- applied for my first plant variety protection mm-hmm. certificate, which is a big deal for a breeder. You're not considered yeah. a breeder unless you get these things. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just hobby stuff. It's, you know, and you you haven't um, made a a particular, like, new crossbreed that is something special. Right. And you reproduce get certified. So yeah. a, a, an open pollinated variety, when it gets registered with the USDA, you get to give it its name. Nice. And you supply the seeds to the USDA that they, mm-hmm. so when you... Um, develop a new variety, you also are supplying seeds to other breeders and they can breed yeah. from your variety. It's not yep. the same as a patent. It's it's more of a rite of passage from breeders that they yeah, that they help sense. each other. You make progress, well then someone can take your seeds and they can go beyond. Yeah. And but they they can't register their variety as yours. I mean, yeah. they can't. Yours. They can't. They have to do something completely new about it. They can't just yeah. take your variety because you have it with the USDA, and that yeah. protects it. So yeah. when it's I, yours, it's registered as yours yes. as your breeding success. Right, and you get yeah. to name it. And so my first yeah. varieties that I put in were coyote and green, coyote brown and green. The green had a really amazing story. I, it was the green came from one of the F twos. There were about 2,000 F2s of various brown and brown crosses, and one plant had, was this scraggly plant under a magnificent plant, and this one plant had two cotton bowls, and those two bowls were green, and I'd never seen or heard of green cotton ever. That's fascinating. I love the green, by the way. I love the green. And it had this strange flower, this flower that was cream and crimson on the first Ooh, day striped beautiful. and red leaves it was so different than the others and it popped out from in this from this cross yeah. and then as soon as i got it i planted all those in pots and used yeah. those in all these crosses and then from that i developed other varieties of green that were better to grow than that first green but yeah. at any rate the color didn't wash out that's magical thank you that's how it felt yeah, that like, you know, appearance of the green, like, oh God, that's fantastic. Love it. It was. It was it was the thing that set me 
to decide that this would be my life's work. When that green, yeah. when I found that green, I decided this is it. I'm going to quit my jobs, or I'm going to work hard enough at my jobs to save enough money to be able to do this. <laughs> yes. So that's, that's awesome. why I, you know, that green was really a big deal for me. And it turns out that it was what launched my capacity to quit my job as a scientist and just do this work because. Yeah. The customers, well, that's part of the next part of the story. But at any yeah. rate, the, the deal is, is that the, um, the hand spinners, once, I, once, they, once the master hand spinners informed me about this color thing, it mm. changed the way I did the breeding. It yeah. added up this selection criteria. And yeah. when I applied for my PVPs, the examiner, who was also an entomologist, who it was mm. really funny, he was really a great guy, he, he did not grant the PVP because of the improved fiber. Um, he granted the PVP because it was the first naturally colored cotton in the literature that the color didn't wash out. Because all, awesome. all the other naturally colored cottons all over the world, yeah. when you launder them, the color um, begins to disappear. Yeah. And so this is a very, very big deal. And yeah. I think most of the seeds that are around now that people grow and call heirloom and all this stuff <laughs> yeah. are really from my seeds because they were Probably, this big yeah. breakthrough. And then, of course, the seeds got everywhere and everyone's yeah. growing them in their gardens and they're all calling them heirloom. That's funny. But they went through this, they went through this selection process that was informed by master hand yeah. spinners. Yeah. And so it's not heirloom. It's it's master hand spinners have a yeah. big part in this. It's wonderful that that the whole thing really owes itself to to the purpose for which you were breeding it. Do you know what I mean? Like because you came to it as a hand spinner? Yeah. That you you saw that as an important portion of the process. Otherwise you wouldn't have sent them to hand spinners right. and gotten that feedback. Right. It's it's I know. all it's all like it feels like fate you know like you've got you've got all this particular experience that just builds and builds and builds and builds and leads you to this yes that's that's how it feels and then i i come upon these other naturally colored cotton programs in the rest of the world the chinese invested millions of dollars into a genetic engineering of naturally colored cotton and yeah. guess what their colors wash out yeah and they are like baffled well, uh, hmm. And the same, you know, I've, I've experienced this. I just got an email from someone whose product in, was a, a, a very well-known, wonderful Egyptian uh, company was using some naturally colored cotton, and they're all distressed because the color has migrated in yeah. laundering. And I'm like, well, who bred it? Yeah, China. And no answer back, right? Oh, no, nobody yeah. wants to buy. Nobody wants to... They want, everyone wants to pretend this is something direct from ancient times that oh. was not informed or improved. I think, I don't know if it's because of misogyny. They don't want to think that a woman would approach this differently or better, in no. a better way. I don't know what it is. You know, it might be, it might be that trend toward, 
toward heirloom stuff like you know obviously like it's the same thing with paleo you know the paleo diet like obviously the people who did it before did it better you know like there's that there's that kind of like push toward recovering ancient wisdom but the thing is that you're doing you're doing crossbreeding the same way that crossbreeding has always been done you're not right. genetically hybriding it you right. know you're you're manually cross-pollinating things and then making a stable a stable right. um yeah, you know, open hybrid. pollinated variety. Yeah. It's called an open pollinated variety yes. when you do this. It takes yeah. many, many generations. And, so and then it, the seed is stable and you plant that yeah. seed and that's what you get. Yep. Consistently. Consistently. Yes. Yeah. So it might be it might be that. It might be that, you know, we're trying to go back to the way things have been done in ancient times kind of vibe, you know, mm-hmm. rather than being misogynistic. It could just be that. Yeah, it could be. You know, and so they they don't want to look at this is true. Disco- you know, newly in quotations discovered. You know, right. methods of doing this. I don't know though. I feel like I see I see this playing out in different uh, different arenas, and yeah, I I really hope that people know and realize that this cotton was it's not only me. It's me yeah. and all this group of master hand spinners. Yep. that made this very fundamental, important, critical, in fact, finding. Yeah. And if they hadn't brought their skills to this, it would not have gone this way. Yeah, you'd be in the same boat that everyone else is in with the, with the color washing out. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. only because there existed these groups of master hand spinners. And so yeah. I feel like these hand-weaving guilds are and hand spinning guilds, these guilds of craftspeople mm-hmm. have this force that they don't yeah. even know they they have. They're doing good in the world and they don't even know it perhaps. Yeah. They're repositories of human knowledge. Yeah. You know, they're they're keeping all these ways that that humans have have, you know, figured out over the years, you know, or millennia. All they're they're keeping that tradition alive, they're keeping that knowledge alive. Yes. So there's there's that part of the story. So yeah. now I'll await your next question. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about your farm. So you you have this farm in Northern California where you raise sheep and wheat as well as the cotton. Um, so did the location of the farm drive your choices of what you wanted to raise or did you choose the location of your farm based on what you wanted? No, I chose the location of my farm because my cotton got outlawed again and again. Oh. See, I had to keep moving. Is it because of the monocultures? So, like, they didn't want it anywhere close to, to big monocultures of cotton because it might, like, contaminate them with color? Yes. Oh, God. So, I had, first. my first farm was in Kern County, and I had, yeah. I had it was a, a fluke of luck, and, and my my family lent me the money to buy this range land that had been foreclosed upon. And then mm-hmm. I amazingly, I found water on it and then it became farmable and I yeah. was able to do my breeding nursery there and it was really wonderful. And then they outlawed colored cotton and I had oh, to move yeah. and I moved to Arizona okay. and I was there for six years and then they quarantined colored cotton. So then by this time, my mother was really old, and I wanted to be near her, yeah. and I wanted to be in an area where there was no cotton, where people wouldn't all yes. do this to me again, yeah. <laughs> but where you could still do, where I could still do my breeding work. Yeah. And um, there's this luminary in the organic world named Amigo Bob, mm-hmm. and 
I called him up crying, like after this happened that my cotton got quarantined. And well, it wasn't just that it was quarantined. It was the rule was I had to be three miles from anybody's seed cotton. And one of the big seed companies put in a seed field 2.9 miles away from the farm I was a partner on. So you were just pushed out of it. You just had to go because they, they of course, have more money. Yes. So I had to leave again. And this time was just so heartbreaking. And I just thought, where should I go? What should I do? Yeah. And um, he, Amigo said, what, have you ever looked at the Cape Valley and never heard of the Cape Valley? Yeah. And so he told me about it and gave me some names of people. And I came up and looked and it's this beautiful place, really yeah. beautiful. And it's um, pretty close to San Francisco. In fact, like two hours. And my mom was in Walnut Creek then. Mm-hmm. That, um, yeah. And so it was only an hour and a half. Yeah, Walnut that's Creek, great. and so I'd be close to my mom. I could, and then my farm that I had bought as rangeland, foreclosed yeah. rangeland, because I found water, it was worth all this money, and I was able yep. to sell it and buy a farm of the same size on one oh, of these good. farm exchange things, and that's how it is that I got this farm. That's wonderful. So, did you yeah. add the sheep in just to like manage the range, or well, did, I, was it a conscious choice, being like, I also want sheep? I was always dreaming about being bio, going biodynamic. You know, I was yeah, a, I was the yep. first organic cotton farmer. I was really a fanatic about organic. And yeah. then I started reading about biodynamic, and I really, it captured me. Yeah. And to do biodynamic, you need animals. Yeah, so and, um, for people who are not, like, I'm I'm going to be farming at some point, so, like, I know what biodynamic is, yeah, but so can you explain biodynamic people? for the listeners? Well, it's difficult for me to describe. It's full of all sorts of um, mystical elements that are individually <laughs> well, it's, it's right? it's an interesting synergistic, it's it's that the parts, you know, together make more than the whole. So it's the same, yes. you know, the same. So it's, it's incur- including things like, you know, animal populations on your land that help fertilize, but also like the fertilizing helps the plants to be stronger without pesticides and so the plants you know produce better everything produces better like you know your animals can eat the plant waste your you know your animals feed the plants um you know everybody works with the water you know yeah. like it's 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 a whole right. synergistic you're supposed movement. to have your farm is supposed to be an organism yes and or but the, the the purpose of this organism is to bring health to the earth yes and, and so and this, everything everything benefits from it. Yes, and but you're like this place where uh, radiating out is healing yeah. energy, and so yeah. this again fulfilled my trying to save the world thing that I've never yeah. gotten over. And yeah. so it was kind of like, and then what happened was my my one of the farms here that's been so kind to me, um, Drew at Full Belly Farm, she told me, oh, there are these people that the Olkowskis, and they have, their farm is closing down and they're selling all their sheep. They have colored merinos. You oh, should buy God, a that's few. That's great. Oh, yes. I said, okay. Yes, you should. <laughs> I should. So I well, go. Well, because colored merinos are just, you know, like as rare in the sheep world, like, because the vast majority of the sheep that are being raised for wool production are merinos, you know, and they're like in giant flocks in Australia and New Zealand, yeah. you know. So like, but they're, they're breeding for white colored merinos. So like having colored merino sheep is just as rare as having the colored cotton. Right. And so I said, okay, I'll buy six. 
because that seems like a reasonable number to sort of get used yeah. to taking yeah. care of animals. Yeah. So I go, and it, these people, the Olkowskis, by the way, were the were people who inspired me in high school, along with my <sighs> high school. So they weren't just people; these were yeah. people who had inspired me to yeah, go into so biocontrol. It's got a and, deep, deep connection locally for you at that farm, then. Yes. So I had in those days, I had a truck and a trailer, and I went down there to pick up my six sheep that I had bought. Mm-hmm. And the people who were managing the farm were all crying. Oh, they were no. in, they were sobbing. All the sheep were going to slaughter the next day. Oh no! And so they shoved thirty of their favorite <laughs> sheep into my trailer. Thirty, not just six, but thirty. <laughs> just because they couldn't they couldn't <laughs> bear to see them slaughtered. Correct. They put That's all their fantastic. Ones in there. All the ones they had bottle fed. All the ones uh-huh. that they loved. They shoved them in there. So I bring them back here. I think I'm getting six. No, I have thirty. You gotta get and some more water troughs. <laughs> I, I have this little round crown putting them in, and I don't, you know, in those days I'm living on my farm in a travel trailer. This is, yeah. you have to know, I had, like, I've always put the plants and the animals yeah. first. Yeah. And me last, which is not really so smart, but it's unfortunately <laughs> what was going on, particularly then I'm in this little travel trailer. Yeah, well, and, and it's, it's a matter of your drive. Yeah. 30 sheep, and I'm Good going, Lord. oh, my gosh, and I know nothing about sheep. And I'm, <laughs> I have to get hay for them, and, and I have to get yep. enough big water troughs, and I'm stunned. And then three days later, they all start having lambs. Oh, no. Yes, lambs. Oh, wow, everywhere. that's a trial by fire for your sheep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, of course, a whole bunch of them abandoned them because they're not supposed to be yeah. moved. Of no. course, what was their choice? To go be No, they didn't have a choice. It was, they had it was, no choice. You know, the only option. So. It was the only option. They put their so favorite ones. So you just make ones. what you can of it. I did. And I there were a whole bunch of lambs that did not make it because their yeah. mothers rejected them because of the yeah. stress. And I hadn't developed the skills yeah. to um, bottle feed them pro- appropriately. Yeah. People tried to help me, but I was in a travel trailer. I didn't have the nipples. Yeah. I didn't have a place to... I didn't even have the milk, right? Yeah. You have to milk, milk and cream or this lamb replacer. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't have it. But and you didn't have the knowledge to know that you needed it. Correct. I thought I was buying six adult sheep. Yeah. Not 30. Not 30. Pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> so that's oh, how it's been with the sheep ever since. And I just keep having more and more sheep. And the trouble is I love the sheep. I yeah. really do. And they have the most beautiful wool. That's Their awesome. wool is is super fine, yeah. black, brown. All the oh, as black, the black ones black age, they go silver. As the brown oh, ones God. age, they go um, light brown. That's um, I've had an adventure with learning about sheep and this farm. Thanks for joining me for part one of Sally Fox's interview. Next time, we will finish the interview with Sally, where she pivots to carbon sequestration. We'll also talk about finding meaning in your creative work and having a truly humane and organic farm. We'll also be talking to Joan Ruane about spinning cotton in the next episode. You can find a little bit about spinning and weaving guilds with some links that I'll put in the show notes. Um, Find your local ones. Join. It's great. Thank you again and again and again, forever and ever, amen, to all of my patrons. They take care of 
this creative work in a way that I can't understate. If you'd like to join the Patreon, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, or it's patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. You can also follow me in all of my making at Miriam Felton Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram as Mimnits. That's M-I-M-K-N-I-T-S. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook. Search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories. Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? <laughs>